When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to All the Small Things with me, Venetia Lamano. Before we dive into today's conversation, here's a quick message. If you know me, you'll know that period pants changed my life. My go-to brand for reusable period underwear is Wooka, which stands for Wake Up Kick Ass. They're founded by a Nepali woman called Ruby, who is on a mission to break taboos around periods with sustainability and inclusivity at the heart of what they do. If you're new to period pants, let me tell you how easy they are to use. You select pairs with absorbencies to suit your flow and wear them in the same way you do normal underwear, changing them once a day. You can wear them for up to 12 hours. There are no leaks, no smells and no waste. Wooka are a size inclusive brand with sizes ranging from 2XS to 6XL and styles and cuts to suit every body and person from thongs to high waist to lace to even sportswear. My favourite style is the Wooka Flex. The Flex is an adjustable pair of pants that features a strap similar to a bra that allows me to change the size of my period pants as my body changes. It's a true game changer. The other thing I love is their accessories, period or no period. This winter I am forever attached to my Wooka wearable hot water bottle. I am obsessed. If you're looking to make a sustainable swap this year, why not start with period pants? I am thrilled to say that I have an exclusive £5 off your Wooka order for my listeners. Just head to wooka.co.uk that's w-u-k-a.co.uk and use code small things this is valid until the 31st of january 2023 please see the show notes for terms and conditions Marielle Elizabeth is a body activist and writer in the ethical fashion space who advocates for broader size inclusion and radical body acceptance Throughout her social media platforms, she shares not only her lived experience as a plus-size person, but also the ways in which we can all be striving to be kinder to the skin we're in. She is a change-making contributor to Vogue, where she writes brilliantly about issues including, but not limited to, can we dismantle fat phobia on the red carpet? And so, your body changed during the pandemic. Here's how to rebuild your wardrobe. In short, Marielle is here to make slow fashion easier for plus-size babes. She is one of my favourite people to follow on social media and, in my humble opinion, one of the most important voices for positive change. In this episode, we unpack fashion's fat phobia and sustainable fashion shortcomings when it comes to size inclusivity, society's ableist concerns, in inverted commas, about plus-size bodies, and why we need to question caring about the size of a stranger's body. And lots, lots more. Just a quick heads up, there is talk of disordered eating in this episode. So if you're not in a place for that today, please feel free to choose another episode from this series. I learned so much from Marielle and it's a true privilege to have her on All The Small Things today. Here's our conversation and I hope you enjoy. (laughs) 
Marielle, I am so excited to chat to you. But before we dive into today's interview, this podcast is called All the Small Things. So I was wondering if there are any small things, rituals or habits that you like to practice when you wake up or just during the morning to help you feel grounded ahead of the day. Yes, I am not a morning person. So my favorite thing to do when I wake up is lay in bed with my cat for about 15 minutes. I sleep with our blinds open so that the sunlight in the morning helps kind of encourage me out of bed. And we watch out the window for other cats in the neighborhood because she loves spying on them. And so that's always my favorite way to start the day, holding my cat watching the world outside. This sounds so wholesome. I can't even tell you. <laughs> it really is. What's your cat's name? How long have you been a cat mom? Uh, Rory. And she, I think, is turning 12 this October. So I've had her since I adopted her from the Humane Society when she was just allowed to be adopted. So I've had her for all 12 years of her life. Wow, absolutely love that. So you grew up in Edmonton in Canada and you're still based in Canada at the moment. What was your earliest memory of an item of clothing that you absolutely loved? And also what was it like growing up in Edmonton? Because I've never been before and I'm wondering (laughs) what it was like. I'm trying to think of the first item of clothing I ever loved. I would say both of my graduation dresses would be very significant to me. My mom tailored my grade nine grad dress and made my grade 12 grad dress for me. She made Christmas pajamas for me and my two brothers when we were very young. And um, she made a nightgown and it had buttons on it that said, I love you so much on them. And so I would say my most meaningful items of clothing were all things that my mom made. And growing up in Edmonton, I like Edmonton. I think that... It's kind of like living in a small town, but over a million people live here. There's a beautiful river valley that cuts through the entire city. So the entire city is built around this massive green space that doesn't allow for development or things like that. So no matter where you live in the city, you are very close to this massive belt of forest and trees and walking trails and things like that. It's important to note that it's situated this way because of the fur trade and indigenous trading, uh, trapping lines and things like that. And the river was the easiest way to move furs. So that's a thing I really love about where I live, even though there's a lot of things that are very frustrating because I, I live in a province that has a very right wing government right now that is literally paying millions of dollars a year to quote unquote fight fossil fuel propaganda to try to dispel climate change and dispel that oil is bad and that's everywhere so like it's a it's a it's an interesting place to live is that a helpful tool in terms of how you communicate issues related to climate and social justice i think it's good for me to be aware of what other people feel and think even if i don't like hearing it sometimes I think that that's one of the challenges of social media is we spend so much time hearing the same thing from people that have our mindset. And I think it is important to constantly challenge ourselves to understand what other people are hearing and figure out how to engage with people that don't have the same views as us, because I think that that's something social media is increasingly taking away. We don't talk to our neighbors about politics in the way we used to. And I think that loss of community and that loss of having to work with people that view things very differently from you is a loss for society. 
Yeah, I agree with you. And I think you've raised something really important. It's this thing of like, how, especially being an online creator and a digital creator, how can you meet people at the point at which they're at? And I think that's one of its challenges. But I think it's something you do really well, which we will get into more deeply. You were an athlete when you were growing up, right? You competed for Canada in wrestling. Yes, at the Junior Pan American Games, I wrestled for Team Canada and medaled. I was very involved in sports growing up. And I'm interested to know how being a young athlete impacted your relationship with your body. I think the way that we assume athletes are healthy because of how they spend their time is incredibly inaccurate. I was in a sport from the age of grade eight to probably when I was 22, I had five concussions, which is why I stopped wrestling. I participated in a sport where I was weighed publicly every day for most of my adolescence and my young adulthood. I owned a sauna suit when I was in high school. I cut enough weight that there were periods where I would stop getting my period. And I was also considered at the peak of fitness. And I think that that is a very common thing for a lot of athletes. And I think there's more research coming out about that. My sport was extremely weight-centric. However, I think there are a lot of sports that are more quietly weight-centric. If you lose a few pounds, you'll be carrying less when you're running. If you lose a few pounds, it'll work better for whatever sport you're doing. And I think that disordered eating and eating disorders are inherently tied into sport. And I hope that it's something that more and more people become aware of because there are so many great things I loved about being a wrestler. And I loved about being an athlete. I loved about representing my country, traveling. My university for the first few years was free because I was a full-time athlete as well. But in terms of relationship with your body, it encourages you to punish your body I mean, I spent most of my years in a sport where people would wear t-shirts that say fat is weakness leaving your body. Body image in sport is something that I am very fascinated in and am aware of how toxic that culture is. It's really interesting to hear about that from you because I think, you know, if I think of a sport like ballet, ballet is a more kind of obvious one where diet and weight is more openly talked about, but I wouldn't have thought that was the case with wrestling. Has that experience of being conscious about your weight as an athlete, how has that impacted the work that you do today? And how has it kind of informed how you speak to women and other people who have issues with their body and have experienced disordered eating and are going through all of that? I think it's something that I'm still actively working through myself. And so I'm always very cautious of how much I can share about the work I'm doing internally and with a therapist with, you know, thousands and thousands of people, because I think it is important that I keep working to heal myself and the trauma that came from being involved in that sport and the trauma that I'm continuing to unpack now without having to practice therapy publicly. I think that that's something with age I'm very proud and cognizant of that I can have those boundaries and I can work through things independently and then bring those things back to other people and share them. I think what's really interesting from my perspective is I have lived both as a person that is considered at the height of physical fitness and I have lived as a fat person in a fat body. And I think that it has been endlessly fascinating to me to be able to have the privilege to speak about both of those experiences and to hold space and empathy for the way both of those bodies are treated so differently when I think in reality they both needed the same love, care, food, encouragement, and acceptance. 
I think it's sometimes really triggering for me and really hard now as a fat person to have people say, it's fine that you love your body, but be healthy. And health is often thrown at fatness as kind of a threat. And apart from the fact that it's extremely ableist and problematic in that entire regard, and I do want to acknowledge that, I think a very deep, tender part of myself goes, if you're so worried about my health, where were you when I was, you know, 17 and buying a pregnancy test because I was terrified I was pregnant when really I had cut weight to a point that I stopped getting my period for months? Where were you when I was thin and actively harming myself in a very significant way? Why was no one worried about my health then? And now when you know nothing about me, you don't know what I eat. You don't know how I exercise. You don't know how I care for my body. Because of the way I look, you feel entitled to tell me that you view me as unhealthy and that you have quote unquote concern for me. And I work with a dietitian. I am starting with a personal trainer. Like I have the financial means and privilege to be able to really care and prioritize my health. Now, all of a sudden, everyone is up in arms because I am fat. Like this system is so incredibly broken that it is failing me on both ends of the spectrum. And how is it failing all of us? And how do we get people to stop equating health to body size and how much better we would all be if we could break out of that constant narrative that we grew up with. And so I think in terms of like, how does that sport experience relate to the work I do now, it creates this indisputable argument in my head, because I know what both feels like. And I am an example of both. And I hope that I am able to talk about it eloquently enough to get people to start reframing what they think a healthy body looks like and also start questioning, why do I care about the health of a stranger? And is me harassing them actually going to make them healthier? Or is it damaging their mental health, making them feel worse about themselves and actually not helping or address any of the systemic things that lead to fat people getting inadequate health and care and community. And instead is just you wanting to harass a stranger And how do we change people from that idea of helping, and that is in quotes, to the actual help fat people need, which is better access to medical care, addressing food deserts, dealing with the way doctors continue to refuse to treat fat people for the things that they need, dealing with wage disparity, wage inequity, and the fact that fat people in most states and most countries can still be discriminated against based on their body size with no legal recourse. If you're worried about my health, worry about those things and just trust that I am capable of caring for my body. I think like so many issues it's a misdirection of outrage. And if we could collectively direct our outrage at the top and at the systemic root causes of all of these issues, we would be in such a better position. So let's talk about fashion. Were you a consumer of fast fashion? And if so, when did that change? I did consume fast fashion. My mom didn't work for most of my childhood. I had two brothers. So a chunk of my clothing was homemade and then the rest was fast fashion. Shopping was like a twice a year activity. We would go for back to school and then usually like late spring, early summer because we would have grown out of our summer clothing. 
But it, when we were shopping, it was always fast fashion. And when I was 17, I found a store on White Ave that's like a strip that used to be predominantly independent shops. There was a store there, it was called Nokomis. Basically, they would bring in clothing that was all made in Canada and they would have one of each size. And when it sold, it sold. And it was the first time I had ever been in a store like that. Clothing was treated with such reverence. And I just like, I loved it. I loved Nokomis. Everything looked so beautiful. It was my first introduction to ethical and sustainable fashion. Uh, it was my first introduction to small designers. And without a doubt, that store changed my life so significantly, which is why I believe so deeply that local business can create such change in community. I only was able to shop there for probably about five or six years before the store closed. But I so desperately wanted that clothing because that clothing felt like the type of person I wanted to grow up into. And by stark contrast, at the time, I was literally working at The Gap to make money so I could go spend it on ethical and sustainable clothing because it was just so much nicer. Like I was working at The Gap and like every week would be a new delivery of clothing. There was like pre-fall, fall, late fall, pre-holiday, holiday. Every two weeks, there was a new pile of things that we had to try to sell that all kind of looked the same. And I would then go to this store that had like, like more than 30 things in it, but it felt like so few things like you could actually see everything that was in the store. And I just remember being like, this is clothing. This is what it feels like to care about the things you wear. And every piece I bought from there, because the price point was higher, it'd be like, I'd think about it, I'd wait for it to go on sale, I would really consider if it would fit my life. And that was really my first introduction to slow fashion. It was how I started learning about designers. It's how I started reaching out to designers and asking them to make custom clothing for me because their things would like almost fit, but not quite. And it was the first time I felt like I could talk to the people that make my clothing. It was the first time it occurred to me that someone was making my clothing. It was the first time I felt like I could participate in what my clothing was and how I got it. And I could be part of that narrative instead of just passively shopping at the Gap, buying tiny vests and t-shirts that didn't fit quite right. But they only cost, with my discount, like less than $30. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. So 
let's talk about size inclusivity in fashion because I am someone who is extremely critical of the fashion industry, you know, predominantly as a whole, big fashion. But one way I would say fast fashion is well ahead of the game in comparison to some ethical smaller brands is its sizing. And this is one of the arguments that comes up I would say the most anytime I post anything on social media about, you know, shopping slower, um, shopping secondhand is always sure, but X brand, be it Shein or Boohoo, whatever it is, caters to my size and these brands don't. And that is a real problem. We can't have a sustainable fashion revolution until it is accessible for all bodies. This is really your area of expertise. And I would love to know what kind of changes you have noticed since you started doing this work and how you feel things are going? I want to say two things, and I know they're probably controversial for your audience, and they might not love what I'm saying, and I'm okay with that. When it comes to fashion collectively, specifically women's fashion, I think it's projected that less than 8% of all the clothes that are made will fit plus-size people. And that's now, and I would say five years ago, that number would have been way smaller. And before that, that number would have been (laughs) almost non-existent. And I think if less than 8% of the clothing currently being made is accessible to plus size people, I can understand and hold space for the frustration of most fat people when the conversation has shifted to, it's your fault that climate change and fast fashion is also harming our planet if you are continuing to buy fast fashion as a plus size person, I think everyone should be working to have as sustainable of a wardrobe as possible. I also think that if every fat person stopped buying fast fashion tomorrow, the problem wouldn't really change because 92% of the problem isn't us. And I have a lot of empathy for plus size people that feel like this onus of being responsible when access to clothing, period, has only really existed for maybe the last 10 years. When you start from a place of only being able to shop at 8% of all clothing that's made and then being told you need to be limiting where you're shopping even further, I have a lot of empathy for the response of the plus size community to kind of be like, fuck off. I think my approach is different than a lot of other people working in ethical and sustainable fashion because my approach is how do I get you interested in participating even if that's 1% more participation than what you're currently doing versus holding the plus size community to the same level of standard and expectation. I try to hold straight size people too when it comes to ethical and sustainable fashion. They have never had the same opportunities as straight size consumers to get a sense of what clothing they want, how they want to see their body and how they feel in clothing. And I think price accessibility kind of compounds that The plus size community is very well researched. If you are fat, you are very likely being paid less for your job due to size discrimination. If you can even get a job, there is a ton of research about the way jobs discriminate against fatness and will always hire a thin person over a fat person due to stereotyping of fatness as lazy, unmotivated, all of those things. And then you slam on top of that, all sizing is inconsistent in plus sizing, whether you're talking ethical fashion or fast fashion. So you're saying, hey, I know you probably make less money. I know you don't have a lot of confidence in the things you wear because up until like three years ago, you were only allowed to wear very, very, very specific things. I would love if you could pay hundreds of dollars for something you have never tried on before. 
you don't know if it will fit, it's very likely there is no return policy, and you'll just spend that money and cross your fingers and hope that it fits, that's a hard sell. That is a hard thing to convince a plus size person or any person to do. And then to the other part of the question, you know, asking about size inclusion, I think it has come such a long distance in the last 10 years. I think that there are more options in ethical and sustainable fashion that go up to a 6X. I think where we're seeing this kind of struggle to have people shop these brands that offer these sizes is it's trying to reach an entirely new community. It is trying to reach people that have probably checked your website. You didn't have their sizing then. How have you found them, apologized, asked for their business, and made it clear that you want not just their money, but you want to see their bodies in your clothing, that you're proud of how your clothing looks on fat bodies. And I think that a lot of brands continue to struggle to re-engage the plus size community because you're not trying to convert a customer that has never heard of you. You're trying to convert a customer that you already failed and let down. And that is a different marketing strategy. And I think that that's something, again, where we're seeing kind of this delay. Firstly, I don't think anything you said was controversial. And it goes back to this thing of where are we directing our energy and our outrage? And I know that people feel very passionately about an issue, especially when they first come to it. And I know I was like this when I first found out about the impacts of fashion. I came to it with all of the energy and all of the, everyone's just got to quit. And why doesn't everyone care about this as much as I do? And like, come on, like the same way I did when I first went vegan, I was that vegan who just would not (laughs) stop talking about it, right? And then the more I've learned about oppressive systems, the more I realize that all of these issues are systemic and how can we collectively fight for change that takes into consideration all of these different intersections. If I'm being completely honest with you, I hate and find it difficult that a fat person will come to my page and think, I don't feel included here. She's talking about wearing her old clothes. My body changes all the time. Like this just isn't for me. I know that I have so much room for improvement and room for growth there. Now it's one of the reasons why I try and talk about different ways to be involved in the slow fashion movement. But I know that's difficult. And like, of course, this stuff is easier for me because of the very many layers of privilege that I have. It, It feels sticky. It feels sticky to me. Even within the plus size community, I don't think it is ever my place to tell someone that wears above a 4X where they should be shopping and what they should be doing, because I don't know what that loss of privilege feels like. And I have more than enough work to do to focus on myself or people that wear smaller sizes than me without having to, you know, focus my energy on people that are the most marginalized in body inclusivity and the most marginalized when it comes to fat oppression. I think it would be really helpful for us to talk about the fact that bodies do change over time. It happens for a multitude of reasons, not necessarily related to health. Why is focusing on bodies staying the same size so harmful? All of our bodies are changing constantly. 
Always. I think it's weird that the society was like, well, the body that you had when you were almost a teenager is the body you should have forever. I'm like, what? It makes absolutely no sense. All of our bodies are changing constantly. And this obsession with maintaining them at a certain size is such a waste of energy and such a waste of things we could be doing. Actually, I've written an entire article for Vogue.com about your body changing during the pandemic. And I encourage people to read it. I got Vogue to print that your body can change and weight gain is not a moral failing. And I am incredibly proud of that. I would say it's a pretty body positive article. And I mean that in the actual meaning of fat liberation and body positivity. Do you have any advice for clothes that can outlast our inevitable body changes? I think that there are a lot of different types of clothing that allows for body fluctuation. And it's just learning where your body fluctuates and what things benefit your body the most. Personally, my bust size fluctuates constantly. I love shearing that very like stretchy, elastic, bunch kind of fabric. Is that the fabric you just tried uh, on in a Mara Hoffman dress? Yes, the dress that is hanging (gasps) literally behind me right now. It is so stunning. Uh, that kind of thing. But it's also like it's it's in a lot of like Christy Dawn dresses, like that very kind of romantic bodice type, not ruching, but a similar texture to that. That allows for like five to 10 inches of stretch. Like that gives you so much room. Wrap dresses that are true wrap dresses allow for such a large amount of size fluctuation. I like spending money on oversized pieces, oversized on my frame. So like an oversized blazer, I have had the same one for five years. I don't think it's ever going to go out of style. I think figuring out pieces that work well with weight fluctuation and spending money on those. And then, you know, for jeans, maybe you are buying fast fashion jeans. If you are buying a pair of cotton jeans that have zero stretch, buy the ones that fit. That's great. And understand that maybe instead of buying five pairs, you buy two pairs and you wear them to death and you repair them when they break. And then when they no longer fit you, your cost per wear and the amount you have used that garment is more reasonable because you wore one pair of jeans basically all winter long. Such good advice. I am someone who has dealt with disordered eating in the past and I had for so long. And I think so many of us do this. I kept this pair of jeans that I only actually fit for a very, very small amount of time that were just hanging at the back of my wardrobe. The way it kind of like felt heavy on my shoulders and on my head, just looming there, had such a negative impact on my headspace. And the moment I decided to let that pair of jeans go, was so liberating and I think really, really had a positive impact. I think this is a good moment to say that reselling our items that no longer serve us is a really, really good thing to do. And I would love to hear, Marielle, you talk a little bit about thrifting and resale apps as a plus size person. To be honest, before we spoke, I was feeling like, oh, maybe there are more size inclusive pieces in circulation on resale apps and things like that. But with the facts that you've hit me with, I'm not feeling so, so uh, (laughs) positive about that. 
Okay, here's like a positive from a lot of maybe less positive things we've talked about. I think that the plus size community is really dedicated to helping one another find clothing that fits. I think that that's something that we collectively are really striving for. I would highly encourage anyone listening to this, if you're plus size, to get involved in a community called Sell Trade Plus on Instagram. It is where you can find exclusively secondhand plus size items, often slow fashion items that are discounted. And then on Fridays, I think it's Fridays, they do an open thread where people just like talk and ask questions and say like, hey, I'm thinking of this brand. How does the sizing fit? Has anyone tried this? Is it true to size? Did you buy this? Have you regretted this? It's basically like a digital message board that is all plus size people trying to help one another out. And it's like such a beautiful community. And I think that there's a number of examples of plus size people finding and building their own communities within the fashion space because for so long we just had nothing. So that's a really great place. I think it's linked through my bio on my Instagram right now are some plus size vintage resellers that specialize in plus size vintage. Shop Berries is based out of New York. Berries is with a Z. There's one locally in Edmonton found for us plus. My friend Nicole runs it. And so I think that like in terms of resellers, I don't always wade through the immense amount available out there. Instead, I do tend to focus my energy on finding curated spaces where I can search by size, engage with a selection that I know will mostly fit me. And so being able to find curated resellers that are stocking those things is such a great way to remove some of that labor off of the consumer and create small businesses for other plus size people to be sourcing and finding things for plus size folks. This is just all so helpful. Thank you so much for such brilliant information there. Something that I learned from an amazing creator in the UK a couple of years ago called Stephanie Yeboa. Oh, I love Stephanie. Yeah. The way she talks about fashion is really beautiful. And something that I learned from her is now if I ever go thrifting or if I'm on secondhand apps, if something is a bigger size than what I am, I'm not buying it. Nope, don't do that. I'm not buying nope. it for the oversized <laughs> look. And I'm also not buying it to get it tailored. Unless it is, you know, like just a little, if it's if it's a small piece in my size that needs a bit of tailoring, absolutely sure. But thrift flips, I know exactly what you're talking about. Like the plus size community hates it. Again, I know this is a podcast. You guys wouldn't be able to see how viscerally I was just like, you no, immediately no. Because we come back to that that number that we started with. of clothing currently is available in plus size. And then there's a thin person taking plus size clothing to make it straight sized. It's such a strong indicator of privilege and not having to ever spend time trying to dress your body because you assume everything is for your body because it always has been. And as a plus size person, I think that our interaction with clothing and experience with clothing is usually like, Uh, this weird, uh, stressful situation of like, usually there's a deadline, or a time when we need that thing. And then there's like this very small amount of runway where we can try to find the thing that also suits how we see ourselves that fits us properly, that hopefully matches our ethics and morals. But no matter what that deadline of needing that garment is still going to come at the same time. And so you are just doing your best to negotiate all the other parts of it to get to that point. And I think that the fear of that deadline exists for plus size people in a way I just know it doesn't exist for straight size people because I was straight sized. And that amount of pressure to find something that checks all those boxes when there is such a small pool of things that could possibly work is just a completely different world than being straight sized. So yes, 
do not steal our clothing. Dear God, we need it. If you're like, this pattern is cute, I assure you a fat person also would be delighted to have that pattern. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, before we start wrapping up with our final questions, I just want to talk about Vogue briefly because it really does feel so game-changing and iconic that you are writing for them I hope you are yeah I don't understand it's very comical to me living in western northern Canada that they're like yeah we want your hot take on fashion I'm like okay all right I hope you're proud of yourself because I just think it's awesome and I love your pieces for them and I was so happy when you made the announcement about the partnership um I loved your piece titled Am I an ethical fashion mean girl? Which, of course, I... <laughs> so many people did not like that. I loved it. Why did they not like it? Well, let's talk about it. A number of people came back to me and said, like, well, there was, there was a tone of, I don't care if I'm a mean girl. I'm trying to save the planet. And I understand and appreciate that perspective. Uh, my degree is in psychology. That's my background. I got a degree in psychology and a minor in English. And my question is always, are people actually listening to the things you're saying? Because it doesn't matter if you're right. It doesn't matter if you have the moral high ground. If when you talk, people turn away, it doesn't move the needle in the direction we want. And I think that's what that piece was really about of like, am I right? Or am I enacting change? Because even if you're right, if the way you're delivering that message is so polarizing, the reality is within the ethical fashion community, we need to switch our mindset and be like, we need everyone to care 5% more. If the entire world cared 5% more and made 5% better decisions, we are going to get so much further than if 10% bump up how good they're doing by another 30%. To me, it's a numbers game and it's how do we drag as many people forward instead of how do we make sure everyone is doing this properly? I think for me, it's just always a question of like, is my message resonating in a way that will enact change or is it me just being right because I know I'm right? And being right is important, but if no one changes their behavior, it kind of doesn't actually matter. But I think this links quite nicely back to something that I mentioned at the start of the interview, which is like, how are we meeting people where they're at? Yes. And, and this is what the article is saying, right? Like, how can we make everyone feel included and like they can be a part of this in their small way that will add and up And that they more? can get it wrong. <laughs> yeah. People fall for greenwashing all the time. I think that should be way more normalized. I think being like, yeah. There was one person I interviewed specifically. She did a campaign with H&M about a sustainability collection, which as a person that works in sustainability, I'm like, <laughs> no, that's not a thing. But it was a person using her public platform saying she cares about sustainable fashion. And to me, I'm like, I take this as a jumping off point. I take this as a person that is willing to engage in a conversation about sustainable fashion Yes, they maybe didn't nail the partnership on this one. But instead of saying, you're wrong, you shouldn't be talking about this, we say, I'm so excited you want to talk about ethical and sustainable fashion. How can I help? 
What are other resources? What are other barriers you're facing? What are other things that you can be doing outside of shopping this H&M Sustainable Collection? Big quotes on that. That move not just you, but your audience in this direction. Because if someone gives the slightest indication that this is a thing that they want to learn more about, I'm in. I don't care that they mess it up. I'm in. How can we get them to keep wanting to be part of this conversation? I'm just wondering, based on that, if I uh, if I took the wrong stance with Kourtney Kardashian and Boohoo. <laughs> no, no, no. She's a billionaire that knows better. That's another thing that I think is always like such a challenge of like constantly reminding ourselves that different people have different levels of power. And like, are we dunking on a person because we know that they'll hear us, but actually isn't leading to the change we want? Versus like, yeah, I think we should call every Kardashian out constantly forever and ever and ever and always. I think it's different for it to be, you know, a fast fashion influencer that is starting to think about transitioning their content. Yeah, those are different realms of change. Thank you. I would love to hear about one item in your closet that means the most to you and why. I bought a shirt that is silk from a very fancy store in Edmonton. And it's a straight size item that I just haven't been able to give up on. I bought it because it was oversized. And at the time, I was like, this is great because when my body changes, this will still fit me. And I wore it for probably five or six years in my early 20s. It's a silk top that is cream and has a pheasant on it, also in cream, like it's a print of a pheasant. And the arms are torn. I had it fixed a bunch of times, but the arms are torn and it's like truly falling apart. And I don't have the heart to take it out of my closet because it's a piece that when I bought at the time, I was like, this is so cool. This is how I see myself. And in all my weight changes and as my body changed, I was able to still wear it for years. I have so many good memories in it. Every time I see it in my closet, I'm like, clothing should feel the way this felt when I put it on, that it's cool and unique and feels like me and will do the things I need it to do. And like, I wore it to do improv shows. I've worn it to do pub crawls, just the full gamut of cool things I loved in my early 20s. And I hope that that's something that everyone has in their closet, clothing that uh, transcends from being just a garment to being kind of like a time capsule of who you were and memories and things that matter. And even after it's long worn out and it doesn't fit, there's a part of you that still hangs on to it because it is carrying all of these lived experiences you've had and carrying a version of yourself that you might never be again, but for you know a moment in time was so perfectly encapsulating of who you are. And I would say that is a piece um, in my wardrobe that is so special that I will never get rid of, that I will probably one day spend way too much money properly framing because I think it's such a great physical representation of what fashion can mean when you own something that feels so deeply like who you are on the inside and you can show that to the rest of the world so they can see who you are on the outside. Um, I, I could listen to you all day. Um, how would you feel about a quick fire round? Okay, sounds good. Ready? Yes. Quick fire with Marielle. Wake up early or have a lie-in? Oh, lay in bed forever. Tea or coffee? Coffee, latte. TikTok or Instagram? Instagram, TikTok is just so loud. <laughs> I, I, it's so hard for me to like hear it all at once because I do, I read every goddamn comment and I know I shouldn't, but I can't help myself. Everyone is shouting, you're right. So noisy. Christy Dawn or Mara Hoffman? 
Oh, I would have said Christy Dawn until two weeks ago, but I went to their flagship store at Mara Hoffman and they were the nicest. Although I will say my favorite brand will and always be Ray NYC because they go up to a 6X and that is the type of size inclusivity we want to see. I'm going to leave all this stuff linked in the in the show notes. Fiction or nonfiction? I love an essay, like a Samantha Irby essay. So I guess I would say nonfiction. Podcasts or TV series? TV series. I don't listen to podcasts. I'm on them. I don't listen to them. Quite iconic, to be honest. (laughs) Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. And finally, routine or spontaneity? Probably routine. I think that's changed, but probably routine. Growth. Age. Love it. Age. It's age. It's being (laughs) in my 30s and being like, this could give me heartburn. I can't risk it. And finally, I would love to know what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved? That I will still love this deeply and feel this passionately about things even as I age and that I will always approach things that make me uncomfortable with curiosity instead of disregard. That is literally going to be pinned on my wall. I could not love that answer more. It was good. I did good. More medals for you, (laughs) my friend. More decoration for around the neck. Thank you so much. I'm actually quite in awe of you. I think you are so brilliant. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. If you are listening to this and are plus size and want to learn anything about ethical and sustainable fashion, check out my pages. And just know that even if up until this point, you have felt like slow fashion and ethical fashion has not held space for you, please know that there is a community that wants you and that ethical fashion needs you. And even if a slow fashion doesn't always treat you in a way that is deserving of your body, know that the movement needs you and people in it want you to be a part of it. And we are not asking for perfection. We just want you to join in and even just start learning or engaging in whatever way you have capacity. There is always room for more people. Mic drop. I love that. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. I hope it gave you lots to think about. And if you did enjoy it, please do feel free to share it with a friend or on your Instagram stories. And be sure to hit the episode notes where I've left links to the things that we spoke about and some helpful resources too. I will see you back here, same time, same place next week. And until we next see each other, I hope you're having the best possible day. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.